Welcome to Title VII, the movement, hashtag the right to sue, the podcast that speaks to workplace discrimination as it pertains to the controversial Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that covers both state and federal laws that outline five major protected classes. Title VII prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. I am Paige, and this is my co-host, Griffith. Hello, and welcome. Please subscribe to this podcast and make sure you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can reach us at rwtv2020 at gmail.com. Our aim is to present employees and employers with an in-person and written personal testimonies along with case study information, citing relatable circumstances and similar situations that will empower whosoever will with the capability to execute a compelling need to have Title VII law enforced to defend their civil rights in the workplace helping to eliminate hostilities due to discrimination that result in racism. Our mission is to make impact now in real time. Under Title VII, an employer may not discriminate with regard to privilege of employment. The classes individuals stated are considered protected under Title VII because of the history of unequal treatment. It's the professed mission of the EEOC's Office of General Counsel, the OGC, to conduct litigation on behalf of the Commission to obtain relief for victims of employment discrimination and ensure compliance with the statutes that the EEOC is charged with enforcing. The Commission's vocation is to function as a national law firm, working collaboratively to maximize its impact on employment discrimination by resolving lawsuits brought on behalf of groups of individuals or even one person, I myself having been such a person. With that being said, for many people, discrimination is an everyday reality. We are talking about institutional discrimination, which involves discriminatory practices, laws, and procedures within certain companies and social institutions. We are talking about permissible practices and procedures that cause discriminatory consequences. The topic is, and will always be, workplace discrimination. And with that being said, now hear this. In our own backyard, Clayton, Missouri, the chief of St. Louis County Police Force, Mary Barton, announced her retirement Friday after accepting a $290,000 payout from the county. The payment was part of a settlement agreement reached between Barton and the County Board of Police Commissioners after Barton last week filed a complaint with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission alleging she was the victim of discrimination. The terms of the agreement that are released by the county did not explain the claims of discrimination and Barton was not available to elaborate. The EEOC complaint will be dismissed as part of the settlement. The settlement said commissioners had notified Barton in January and again last month about concerns over her performance. She disputed the criticism both times, according to the settlement. Barton will receive $190,000 under the terms of the agreement with another $100,000 going to her attorney. She came quickly under fire. Barton was appointed in April 2020 and promised to focus on weighing needs and wants in the department's tight budget. Work with a newly formed diversity and inclusion unit to prevent discrimination in the department and to prioritize community relationships. But she quickly came under fire for comments about how claims of systemic racism in the department were overly broad and probably not accurate. She acknowledged to the Post-Dispatch months later that there was a racial issue. She also criticized for disciplining the department's director of diversity for speaking out after her brother-in-law was recorded using a racial slur over a police radio, reassigning staff who alleged racism and retaliation, and not doing enough to improve officer morale. Now that we've covered the breaking news that has taken place in real time in our region, we'll move on with the show. We have a very 
exciting episode and a very special guest with us today. Today, we will continue to talk about three murders and a suicide, a true police dispatcher story. The following storyline is a true police dispatcher story titled Three Murders and a Suicide. Paige, this is your story. And you say it is your pursuit, your quest to have it experienced by being seen and heard as a TV movie, a cinema movie, etc. With the hope that those who see it will be able to see and accept their individual responsibility as it pertains to the subject matter. That acts such as those that led to three murders and a suicide will not be repeated. Yes, we're discussing workplace discrimination, and I will be giving a personal first-hand experience account of racial discrimination in the workplace. We have here with us today, however, award-winning executive producer and director, Tim Freckbein. Tim is a multi-award-winning writer, director, and producer with Emmys, Sundance Awards, and NAACP Image Awards to his credits. He has developed over 25 television shows that have produced hundreds of episodes and has personally directed over 100 projects. His passion for civil rights brought him onto Three Murders and a Suicide as executive producer and director. He has delved into this story and we are bringing documentary film life to the story. Tim? Thanks for having me, you guys. I really appreciate it. It's uh, an honor to be here with you. And civil rights is definitely a passion of mine. I just got done with another project, as you know, called The Final 19. It's won multiple awards already for audience awards, and it details um, a Vietnam POW, one of the final 19 POWs to come home from Vietnam in captivity and tells his story. And the projects that have been coming to me um, as of recent, along with Three Murders and a Suicide, there's been a number of others. And what really got me thinking about what my role is to play in this. And I think it's understanding captivity. Understanding and, and workplace discrimination is captivity. You are held in, enslaved in many times, and you are held back from doing and fulfilling your dream and your personal destiny because of the fact of other people have chosen to put you in certain places and do certain things to you. And many times these corporations, and I think it's the permission that you talk about, is there are so many different hidden agendas to keep a person down, held captive, and not allowed to move forward. So for my, what I hope to bring to this is a deeper, deeper exploration into the captivity of all the characters that are in the film and how each one uh, in their own way was held captive and that captivity pushed people to the edge. Yes, we know that happens far too often. In giving film life, in this particular case of workplace discrimination, we see how offensive conduct directed at Page caused a hostile work environment that permeated the work environment and workplace with hostility such that it became severe and pervasive. In addition, in some of the documentation, Page, you said that you personally or subjectively found it offensive. And with just calls, you reported it. A hostile work environment claim is a continuing violation. Case law study says it must be objectively offensive so that a reasonable plaintiff would find it offensive. A series of demeaning acts directed at African Americans can be inferred to be based on race. There are several questions that you can ask yourself to help determine whether you've been or if you are currently being discriminated against and whether you will be able to prove that discrimination occurred. Page, I read in some of your documentation that it is your regard for the pursuit of life with liberty, peace, and justice for all, and your hope that he who has an ear will hear once again what racism is doing to all people. Yes, sadly I look back over my life and I see countless altercations in my life alone. Racism has personally given me the opportunity to see firsthand both the killing of the spirit that it perpetuates in most instances and in some instances physical death. 
In the case of three murders and a suicide, a police sergeant committed suicide and murdered his wife and two children. Allegedly, the coroner's report was leaked. It was said that he drugged them at dinner on that fatal evening. All three were found shot in the head in their beds. He also shot himself. Um, Paige, he had been your supervisor when you worked as a crisis communicator, 911 police dispatch and fire dispatcher, correct? Yes, he became the target of the Title VII racial discrimination violation that I filed against the police department. He was made the scapegoat. You know, that's the thing about workplace discrimination. It is always involves multiple people. So it always involves coercion, collusion, um, corruption, and criminality. And by doing that, with so many people involved, there needs to be a scapegoat, else the whole organization will, will crumble. And so that's where you find so many, this is just planned activities, permissible activities. Everybody is in old-fashioned term cahoots right. against uh, people who they don't feel have the ability to fight back for any certain reason. Yes, totally agree. Discrimination may occur in many different forms and in various ways. Federal laws protect employees against workplace discrimination. It is, however, most often very difficult to prove that discrimination occurred. How is discrimination best defined or described? Discrimination can be found when you're treated differently or less favorably than other employees for some reason or another. It involves unfair treatment and harassment almost always. These are the elements that you will have to um, embrace yourself, if you will, to be able to cope with being in the environment in itself. So let's talk about the evidence. What were the charges that you presented to prove your employer intentionally discriminated against you? Well, number one, on the uh, charge sheet, as it pertained to the charge of discrimination, now, this is a legal document that was actually filed, and these are the actual charges. I said that I was not trained properly for the police dispatcher position and was informed of my termination from that position. I had been employed by the police department since early spring of that year. Number two, I wrote that the head of the service bureau told me that I was being terminated because I had not progressed or grasped the functions of the position as quickly as they had wanted me to. And some of the officers on the street as well as some employees in the radio room had complained. Number three, I believed that I had been discriminated against because of my race. My trainer had told the captain head of the service bureau before I came that she did not want to train me because she didn't have the patience. She also had a bias against blacks, which was very frightening in that she had been robbed, she and her boyfriend, at gunpoint by a young black male. And so the person that was training me was not available as well to train me a great part of the probationary period, which created a hindrance in my learning the dispatcher position and processing. There was no training schedule outlined, followed, and many days my trainer did not open any lines of communication outside of the normal work practices and would snap at me if I ask a question. And so I received no warning that I was going to be terminated and I had already received a 30-day evaluation which said that I was a fair employee at that point. Now, in reference to evidence, charges or the direct evidence the direct evidence is the best way to show that you've experienced discrimination. Direct evidence of discrimination includes statements by managers or supervisors that directly relate the adverse action taken against you, reference to your protected class situation or class status. For example, if your employer tells you that you're being let go because you are near retirement age and the company wants to go with the younger image, you have direct evidence that your protected class status was the cause of your termination. The evidence can be in the form of verbal comments or statements written in letters, memos, or notes. In my case, my trainer told the captain, head of the service bureau, that she did not have the patience to train me. The additional commentary in her words were, she was not going to train, A, using the N-word to do anything. There was a bias there as well brought on by the fact that she and her boyfriend had been robbed at gunpoint. 
Not only were they robbed at gunpoint, but they were robbed by an African-American. There's also circumstantial evidence or indirect evidence. Circumstantial evidence can include anything other than direct statements from your employer that allow for the assumption of discrimination. The likelihood of obtaining direct evidence of discrimination is usually extremely hard. No single piece of evidence is usually enough to prove discrimination. Supervisors and other company personnel are usually too sophisticated and too well-trained by their own attorneys to openly express their biases and prejudice. In almost every case, an employee must rely on circumstantial evidence to create a presumption of discrimination. As you said, Tim, the element of corruption (laughs) to the highest power is always present. It's usually just right there in your face, but there's not a lot you can do about it. Exactly. And so in your case, did your employer deny discriminating against you? Yes, most definitely. They tried to cover it up. It started immediately. In my meeting with the chief, he marginalized the slurs. He marginalized the harassment, and he marginalized me personally in his summation of what I presented to him as racial discrimination and unfair bias treatment. He tried to refute it by comparison of himself, being in his words, Greek and left-handed, causing him to be a minority and treated with unfair bias. Greek and left-handed, huh? It's just, I think he should have tried out for the Olympics. He could have been a hell of a baseball pitcher. Um, So for me, I, I'd like to hear some details. I've heard some of them before on this type of harassment, on the way they treated you from food (laughs) to uh, setting you up to be caught by other people and doing things that they were, uh, they were absolving themselves from, you know, different things like that. Oh, so now you want to talk about soul food, not on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's never too early to get your jump start. There's a lot of calories in that soul food. (laughs) So, okay, let me set this up for you. It's lunchtime, right? And so the lead dispatcher says to me, Paige, you want to order lunch with us today? Now, I had never had that offer before, so I'm like, hey, (laughs) I'm feeling real good about this. I'm being asked to order lunch with them on this particular day. And so I said, well, you know, what do you want to order? And they said, what would you like? And I said, well, whatever it is that you all normally get, you know, it's okay with me. We, we can do whatever you all usually do. Then the question, well, have you ever had any food from um, Goldie's? And I'm thinking, I'm not familiar with that name. So I don't know, you know, what kind of food it is. So I immediately ask, no, I'm not familiar with Goldie's. What do they sell? And they said, oh, well, they sell um, fried chicken, cornbread, sweet potatoes, cabbage. I put my finger in the air and I say, right there, that's my order. Fried chicken, cornbread cabbage, sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese. (laughs) So my next question is, how are we going to get it, right? The lead dispatcher says, no problem. She gets on the radio and she says, Adam 24, report to the station. Or she uses the tin code. But you know, that's what it means, come into the station. So when he comes in, she already has the order written out. But she wants what I'm ordering, and the other person that's working with us, my trainer, he gets the menu, you know, the list, and of course he's he's out the door. He's happy to be able to go and get us our lunch. So when the lunch comes back, you know, everybody's tearing into the styrofoam containers and everything, and I had been working, you know, and I hadn't had the opportunity to cook anything like that because that would have been a part of my menu. Right. (laughs) But I had been so busy, you know, hey, this is a new job. I'm, I'm rotating shifts on and on and on. So I haven't been in the kitchen in a minute. So all of it sounds good to me. So we get it open and I'm eating. I, I have my head down in it. And so the major comes in and he goes over and he talks to the lead dispatcher. I later learned that she called him to come in. But he comes in and he goes over and he talks to her. 
Well, later on, he comes back in and he has a note that he gives to her. Now, in the interim, what I didn't notice, I paid absolutely no attention to what else was going on in the room because I was so busy eating. What actually happened on Soul Food that day, one of the two of them had called the major and asked him to come into the radio room. And when he came in the radio room and he saw what I was eating, he went into his office and wrote a memo. He came back out and gave it to her to give to me. And so the memo addressed the fact that there should be no soul food eaten in the radio room. Well, I was the only one that really got the memo because they weren't eating soul food. They had wrapped that stuff up and put it in the bag that it was brought in and trashed it. <laughs> I was the only one in there eating cabbage, sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese, fried chicken, cornbread with onions. <laughs> you didn't even notice. I didn't even know that they weren't even that they eating. Were even eating. <laughs> they were just watching the show. They were just watching the show. They had already been notified long before I ever came there that no soul food was to be eaten in the radio room. That's why they made it a point to ask me if I wanted to eat from Goldie's. Yes. And knowing that the food that they ordered or you ordered is just good, good food. <laughs> and you're going to be feeling a certain way about never been invited before it's certainly invited you're going to jump at the right. chance right right this happened a few years back this is back when she was a little more naive than she is now right yes yes certainly certainly and i'm wondering did they ever intend to eat the food they knew what they had set you up to do so while they ordered they knew they weren't going to eat it they may not have even eaten food from there you just don't know but it certainly makes you have to go back in your mind and retrace all the steps when you realize that you are being disciplined for something that you had no knowledge of and you realize you were set up. So then you have to go back and really look at the steps and document to see how this all came about, who all was involved, how far back they went in order to plan this how many people knew what was going to happen and so it becomes another one of those instances that you end up with your document your documentation being very critical because for some that could seem like something that was very innocent okay you're the new person in the um dispatch room they played a trick on you so what but what happens is that was just part of a pattern. And that pattern went from one incident to the next incident, to the next incident, to the next incident. And when you have to show evidence of an established pattern of behavior, that's when that is that piece that is critical. Every incident that happened, how it happened, who was involved, how it was uh, planned out. You know, one of the things I've always found that's interesting and how vital dispatch is to everything that goes on in a community right and if you're taking the time to play tricks play games use this uh use the radio to call people in for reasons that are anything other than what should be up and board up up and above board then you start saying where's your focus where's your head at when something comes in when somebody's in crisis when there's a home invasion when there's a mugging when there's a you know shots fired where is your head at exactly so many times in that room so many different things were said and done and so many jokes were played on me and so many jokes were projected toward so many questions were asked and so many um, games were played so much race baiting You, you just can't imagine the type of conversations that were presented to just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You know, you just, like, really? Did they really ask me that? Did they really say that? So for people that don't know, your place of employment was in a city that was very racially divided. 
right? So, and the actual building itself was right on the line called what's called here in St. Louis the Delmar Divide. Yes. And it's like, it's the have and have nots, it's the classic story. So, what you have is race is pervasive at all times in this particular situation. And so, um, it is a very, it's a microcosm of what plagues St. Louis yet still today. Yes. And so, you know, when we look at these things, we say, how did they start? How do they keep going? How are, is this happening in this time? It's because it's never addressed. It's never fully punished. It's never fully exonerated. It's always shifted, pushed to the side, covered up, colluded. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so what it never does is it never gets any finality. So people can move on. So people can address, you know, everything that we did with George Floyd. It's that distrust between that particular organization, meaning the police department and its citizens, has just ramped up into kind of a fervor where it should be, right? But I just wanted to give a little bit of context where it was, it was a struggle. Well, we had just been introduced to the Affirmative Action Program. It was just being instituted in the department by African-American woman who tells her own story of the discrimination that she was subjected to as being the first African-American woman and coming in ranking. So her struggle, unbeknownst to myself, because she didn't discuss her struggle with me. See, there were some that they just kept it to themselves. They, they didn't want to talk about it. But I'm not that person. Sure. And when she also remained there longer than you, that means she had to endure years and years more of that type of persecution and experiencing it and keeping it quiet. And for some of the same reasons that you've experienced um, in these different jobs, because unfortunately, this was not your only job where you were the first African-American and where you were targeted and treated with racism, treated uh, inhumane. And oftentimes people don't realize as they try to marginalize and minimize what is occurring that you fear for your life. There are times that you fear for your life, so it is just natural for your own self-preservation and mental health to keep quiet about it. And so there are times you cannot speak about it because you are struggling inward, trying to maintain and not be one of those individuals that explode and come into a workplace and harm people sometimes that are innocent, of what you endured and sometimes that we're guilty. But either way, it's not the right thing to do to come in and commit any violence against anyone else. And so in order to try to keep your sanity, sometimes you can't speak about it. Sometimes you speak later. Sometimes you make it known, but you can only go so far. And so... As we are going through these various cases, we've been really exploring the full spectrum of what steps people decided to take and whether they filed a case and having to make that decision for yourself. But ultimately, you continue to see it happen today because the accountability has still not occurred. The accountability and the consequences being paid by everyone that's involved and then create systems, systems that really do bring the change. But there have to be people that implement the systems. You can put a nice brochure and policy and procedure manual together, but you really have to create that environment where there's no tolerance for discrimination in the workplace and you bring swift 
penalties and accountability from the top down. And that really has not happened in many organizations. And so here we are today, steady, steady presenting cases. Each episode, a new case. And these cases are in 2021, some of them are in 2020, and then going on back in later years. And it's very uh, unfortunate, but hopefully there will be a great value to what we are doing. Uh, you know, you touched on mental health. <clears throat> you touched on mental health in part of your dissertation. And we see in all of the headlines now in different areas, even now in the midst of the Olympics, we see athletes that have trained all of these years pulling out for mental health reasons. You mentioned having my life threatened. Now that's a trigger. The moment you mentioned that, I went right back to that place because it's very vivid in my mind. Even now, it's, it's just vivid. And I think anyone perhaps that has had their life threatened in any way, shape, form, or fashion, especially if it's in a place that you can't flee from. I couldn't flee from work. I really couldn't. And when I had my life threatened, it was by a police officer with his hand on his gun saying to me that he would blow my brains out. He said, if anything should ever happen to him and he's on the street, if he doesn't die, he says, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to blow your brains out. Well, okay. Some people may say that he was just being facetious and, you know, that was just, you know. <laughs> but you're not the one in the seat. And you're not the one that's dealing with that attitude and that mindset. I believe that people speak from the heart. I believe that what's in the heart shall come forth from the mouth. Yes. Yes. As you all have said, if there's no one, or if there are no rules, regulations in place that are enforced, then the behavior is perpetuated. Definitely. You know, what I find interesting too on this is now what are the next steps right you got put into this place held captive in a way and released without recourse and you had to take action you made that personal choice of this is important enough to me and to the other people around me that I need to say no this is not right so talk about that process well, when I wrote about it in the um, in the autobiography, <laughs> in the draft, I referred to me having had what I call anger management classes. I had become a part of a church body, and I was going to Bible studies, and I was going to church every Sunday, and I was learning how to manage my anger. Needless to say, I was very, very, very angry at the way I was being treated. But I'm so grateful that I was in anger management classes. And so instead of doing the things that we see and hear so commonly now, I decided that it would be best for me to seek out an agency that supposedly, and I have to say supposedly because the end results, and that's what I did. I went to the EOC and met with one of the officials and I gave them my story. And even before then, I had decided, I think that this is something that I need to take to the Post-Dispatch. I need to take this to Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5. And so I did that. But mind you, um, as you spoke, Tim, in reference to that area, that particular time, for an African-American to present something as such and for it to be found newsworthy, it was not. It was not going to happen. It was not going to happen. 
and ultimately I filed those charges with the EEOC. I did have a hearing. There was a mediation hearing. And at the mediation hearing, the first round of questioning, they denied every charge that I brought against them. When they were questioned the second time, having it brought to the attention that I had provided the documentation to prove the charges, they were asked why did they lie. They literally stated that their lawyer had advised them to just deny everything. Well, when I heard that, <laughs> when I heard that, I thought, gotcha. But not so, not so. Once again, it all depends on the individuals that are put in positions to make the decision. Now, hearing that, you had your I gotcha moment. You just knew <laughs> everything has changed. I had it. I have it. All there cornbread has, and cabbage. Hey, put the cuffs on them. We don't need to go any further. I got some in my back pocket. Listen, what's going to happen now? But once again, that didn't result in justice. It doesn't always result in justice. And it doesn't always result even in a settlement because oftentimes if the employer can end up ultimately getting away without having to do anything and admit any guilt or any wrongdoing, that's what they will prefer to do because they look at the longer consequences if they say yes it happened it was wrong we're sorry Paige what can we do and then that opens them up potentially to some larger lawsuits some other employees that can come feel comfortable coming forward because they know that this was standard with some other minorities within the department and so there are other people who could have filed complaints as well as now you have to face that there needs to be consequences to the individuals who committed these violations against you. So now what are we going to do to them? Do they stay or do they go? Now we have, we have them admitting that they lied, <laughs> that they were told to lie, to just deny everything. Yes. And so they go back over the questions and they, they advise them. They want to know, was there a 30-day evaluation saying that I was a good and fair employee? And I had that documentation. So they have it. They denied that she had been held at gunpoint and robbed, she and her boyfriend. Well, there's a police report to that effect. So here it is. And then the other part, um, she told them that she was not going to train anyone <laughs> referring to me using the N-word to do anything. And she presented a signed affidavit that she actually told them that because she was wanting to cover herself. She didn't want to be liable. And she had indeed told them that. And so she, she put it in writing. And they're denying it. So what happens? So I receive a letter saying that my allegations were unfounded. <laughs> what, what were you feeling right then? Oh, this is when this is when um, this is when you want to blow your brains out. <laughs> Sorry to bring you back to that one. <laughs> right? Yeah, this is when you want to blow your brains out. I mean, not everyone has wanted to blow their brains out, but I'm not ashamed to admit that I've been in that situation on more than one occasion in reference to racial discrimination, bias and unfair treatment in the workplace. I've suffered it more in the workplace than any other place in my life because at other times you suffer it in passing because you're not always treated well everywhere you go and so you just, you know, you're only gonna be in the presence of those people X amount of minutes and you can be on your way. You know, some people really resent having their change put on the counter as opposed to having to put it in their hands. They know what that means. But, you know, 
nevertheless, it was so much a part of my life. So yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> How can this be? Allegations unfounded. And as a result of that, however, I determined at that time that I would go back to the EOC office, and I did. And I said to the sheriff, I said, this is what happened. Everything that I just said, I repeated, and I showed the sheriff the charge sheet and the letter. And after explaining to him what happened, he said to me, well, Miss Page, you won't have to worry about that. He said, we'll take care of it. And that was the end of that. I never received any other communications, correspondence of any kind from them, ever. To this day, I've never received anything from them. It was left right there. So we were talking about all those C's earlier. Corruption, collusion, criminality, coercion. It seems to me that a boomerang effect has to take place. Or it's like a molecule bouncing around when the heat starts rising, the kinetic energy is moving around. There is some place that that bad behavior has to land. Because I should have received at that point the right to sue. Correct. Instead of allegations unfounded, I should have received the right to sue. I never received anything else. Can you tell about the, you educated me when we first met about what the right to sue means to someone that was in your position. Can you explain that? Well, you know, I'm a stickler for <laughs> the letter, but that letter would entitle you to go into a court of law. That letter is what most any attorney will ask you for. If you contact him and say that you want to have them represent you in a court of law, they want that letter. Without it, rarely if ever you can get a lawyer to take a discrimination case. I should have gotten it. They admitted that they lied and denied everything. I proved the charges, and the rest should have been gravy. Should have been a cakewalk. But again, nothing transpired after that. I didn't get anything. That was it. So you were the only victim? For a season. <laughs> For a season, um, there's a time and a season for all things. And when he said he would take care of it, he actually did. They actually did their job. Now, it was by force, okay? They were forced into it because they didn't want the charges filed against their office. And the summation of all of that, they went into the police department and they caused them to start having classes. And the title of those classes were how to treat blacks on the job, allegedly. Someone in the classes said that that's what they were told the name of the classes were. And so they came in and they, you know, started started presenting some rules and regulations, some guidelines. Not how to treat people Hello. on the job. Correct. See, that in itself. Yeah. That in course, itself. Right? But now... They and them. You'll find in the midst of case study law, and you'll find once you start researching and studying how these institutions work or how they're supposed to work, Ultimately, one would have been demoted, suspended, fired, any or all of the above. Like high school. You go to the dean's office and there's punishment. It usually falls upon the shoulders of the immediate supervisor. It can fall upon the shoulders of the manager of the department if indeed the supervisor reported to the manager, told the manager, and the manager did nothing and didn't give the uh, supervisor the uh, prerogative of doing anything. But someone's head normally rolls. It's one of those situations that we get into the silence 
area. Just because you don't say anything doesn't mean you're not guilty, right? Just because you treated someone fairly but looked other way when they were treated unfairly is does not mean that you were not guilty, you know? And so I think we're seeing so much of this in society today, just like the, the young teenage girl that filmed and stayed there that had the courage to film the George Floyd situation. They didn't look the other way. They got the tape, right? And the tape was seen by millions and millions of people. So there was a hope that some kind of justice would prevail in that and that there was a, a lot of issues around that. But in your situation, it was a band-aid that they were putting on a systemic problem. And it was a group of accomplices. And there's a law for an accomplice. If you accompany someone committing a crime, you can't just sit out with the car running when they come out, jump in the car, and you drive off and be innocent. And so, so often this is what happens. The people in the department become accomplices to this unfair and biased treatment. They know that it's going on, and they seem to think that it's it's funny sometimes or that, you know, it'll take care of itself. I've heard only the strong survive. Um, well, people have come back after having been shot three, four, five times. Some people survived that. But did they really need to be shot? So when that officer, that sheriff came back in and obviously classes started, mm-hmm. that had to, excuse my language, pee off those people to no end that were above, that they had to tolerate. And then the affirmative action with our friend, Miss Jackson, coming in and her being an officer on the street, a beat officer, and coming in and having some type of authority. She's African-American. She's a woman. So in that, um, as it pertains to your case, there's going to be an amount of feeling something is put in their face. They always had control. They feel a little bit is they're losing control. They're losing, gra- they're, it's grasping. And there's usually people who know where all the bodies are buried. You got it. Right? Yes. And you're gone, but you set off a firestorm. And you didn't even really know it, correct? Had no idea. And when did you realize that things happened that were this boomerang effect, this ping pong of bad behavior, of bad actors that happened and resulted in something. Well, let's go back a little bit mm-hmm. because I determined that I'm not going to go quietly, okay? And so that's what caused me to go and file the charges. So now we're in the blowing the whistle stage. Got it. Yes, now I'm the whistleblower, okay? because the white shirts caved in and they supported her in her attitude and her disposition. They stood with her. So now in my absence, okay, I've become more of a threat to the entire department than I ever was in their presence. Now I am a threat. I'm living with it. And Again, I didn't get the notice. I didn't get the memo. But I'm at home, and I see on the TV that a police officer has killed himself, his wife, his son, and his daughter. Now, anything dealing with law enforcement, my antennas are up. And so I just stop in my tracks to see What department and where did this happen and why did it happen? How could it happen? And I mean, the shock of my life. It's the department that I worked in. It's my supervisor. 
It's him, it's his wife, it's his son, it's his daughter. The department that I worked in, the shock and the disbelief, because I don't have a clue, because I've been gone. But what's been happening is the work that goes into those type of cases, the time frames. You've, you've been there, you've done that, you've done that work. So can you speak to us a little bit about the time frame? Well, and it, it truly depends on the time frames as you meet the requirements of the statutes. But outside of that, it depends on the entity, the company. After they agree to do certain things to bring about the change, which is what you have going on, that can continue to go on for as long as the employer chooses. When they start having those classes, how many people they um, have in the classes, what other policies they put in place, those are the type of things that started happening after you left. Once they give the EOC some satisfaction by saying, we're going to implement some policies, we're going to implement some training, and we have uh, made some changes in the table of organization. If they moved the, what was your supervisor, if he became the scapegoat, and then the EEOC has been satisfied. So then things within the workplace are evolving. People are rebelling against having to sit through training. People are being demoted. It just seems like one person <laughs> that was demoted but how that affects that person, how others deal with him, what he's dealing with silently, not telling anyone, those things can go on for years. You know, when I look back, it was at least a year and a half, almost two years, getting to that place. Yes. And that's, again, why it was so shocking because you have to keep in mind, I never received any other correspondence, no communication of any kind in reference to what was going on. I never received anything. When I saw the news, I didn't relate it to the situation because it had been such, you know, so much downtime. I learned that he indeed had been demoted. along with being demoted, I say demoted because he was taken out of that position and put back on the street. And so he had not been on the street in over 10 years. He had been with the department 30 years yes. or more. But now he's back on the street and he's rotating shifts. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And he's dangerous to himself and to the other officers that he's working with because he's in a bad place. And it's citizens. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So the the mix is not good. You've got all this, you know, this mixture. Bad acts, bad decisions, bad taste. The white shirts on down. You have a conglomerate of issues that stemmed from the filing of those charges. And all that stuff has been covered up. I ran into an officer and he said to me, um, you should be doing okay uh, with that case that you filed. And I was looking, I was like, what do you mean? He said, well... I know they paid you. And I was like, no, they didn't pay me. I never received anything in reference to the charges I filed. And so then I began to suspect that maybe they had told some of the people in the department that they paid me, that there was a payout, but that wasn't so. 
And the more I began to, you know, you can hear by word of mouth, people do talk, okay? If you keep your ears open, (laughs) you'll hear some things. And so I began to hear some things. And I began to put some things together. And I saw the picture. I saw the picture. It was all about those charges. Now there are newspaper clippings. I don't know if allegedly would be the word that we would need to use in this instance, but the newspaper clippings say that he was despondent because of him having been um, I believe that it said forced into a retirement, forced into it, because he wasn't, you know, it it wasn't like he was willing to just walk away from the job. I remember um, when I came in and they told me that they were firing me, they asked me, could I work another two weeks? (laughs) Yeah, because they had a, a dispatcher that wanted to go on vacation. And so they needed someone in that room in order for them to have their vacation. And so the answer to that was yes, of course, not a problem. But you couldn't do that job, right? (laughs) Because I wound up working for a radio system that dispatched for 16 departments out of one location, okay? So I actually wound up dispatching for 16 departments. And sometimes some of those days on the weekend, especially Sunday mornings and early Saturday mornings, I dispatched for them by myself. How about that? There you go. Well, you know, I want to bring up one, you know, I think many times you maybe brought it up that you have to see an event and look back and you uncover things that have happened and that's what you were talking about. It's the date that the officer uh, killed himself. The date that he killed himself was 30 years to the day that he had been with the police force. So that didn't happen without meaning behind it. And so what's such a huge thing if you're in a job with a pension? Well, he's forced into a retirement. Before 30 years. And, and broken he, down his salary. I'm sorry. Go exactly. Ahead. Yeah. You're saying it. He was forced into a retirement that caused him to retire with a third of his pension. He had two children that were in a high school. So so, so you have two children that you plan, I'm sure, to send to college without the struggle. Maybe, 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 yes, maybe you wanted, <laughs> thought you were gonna get a vacation home in Florida. Maybe you thought you had people that were loyal to you. Maybe you thought that People had your back and respected you. Maybe you thought you were part of a bigger group. Maybe you thought the oath you took to be an officer meant something. All, all that's taken away. And and when you get demoted, the honor in the within that system itself, I mean, that was like a disgrace. Unfairly. And that right there is just crushing. Well, let me, let me uh, add to that. He was innocent, okay? Exactly. He was innocent. He dealt with me very fairly, okay? And I believe that it's part of my responsibility to make that known, that he was innocent. Of course, his wife was innocent. Of course, his son was innocent. His daughter was innocent. These are innocent people. He never did anything to me that I could record to say that he was racist toward me, biased in any way. He had given me a good evaluation. Mind you, I had never missed a day, had never been late, okay? And when you think about those elements, the fact that you have an innocent person here that's been made the scapegoat the real fall guy, a better term. He was a fall guy. Well, don't we, <clears throat> how many television programs, how many news uh, programs start with 
how could he possibly done this? Right? Yes. I mean, this is the case. It's yes. like that's what this we've is unraveled, it. and that's this what you've it. unraveled, is the idea of the pressure points that are put on. And it all starts with someone getting treated unfairly, racially abused, and harassed. And in a workplace, there's a lot of people involved in that harassment. A couple of days after I left, after I worked those two weeks, he had a heart attack. They put him in an ambulance. He wanted to go to DePaul Hospital because it was near where he lived. They had to turn the ambulance around and take him to St. Mary's. They said he would have never made it to DePaul. So he's off on medical leave in regards to that. But when he comes back, you put him on the street put him on the street. Doesn't that normally happen in reverse? Thank you. <laughs> That's <laughs> what one would on think. on a desk if you had a heart attack and you were on the street working. When you return, you return to light duty. I, I think it's also time to reiterate, if you will, the intensity of a street officer, a beat officer in this particular community at this time. Anything below Midland was referred to as the zoo. East of Midland, that area, the officers called the zoo. And this is where you are in foot pursuits. <laughs> yeah, domestic violence. <sighs> Any number of hand-to-hand -hand combat crimes, ultimately, you can literally expect that you may have to have hand-to-hand -hand combat or shoot someone <laughs> in this particular area. And so he's rotating shifts and he has to work that area as well. And he was called to that area on a domestic violence call. And in reference to that domestic violence call, he beat the officers there that were assigned to it because as a sergeant supervisor, he would have been there to assist them and make sure that, you know, they handled the call properly. But instead, he beat them there. And he actually went on that call, went into the building and confronted the individual that had the shotgun. Without any backup. No backup. No backup. When the backup arrived, he was coming out of the building. And so one of the officers said all he could think was he wanted to be shot. He wanted to be shot. To take a call like that, when you know someone has a weapon, you don't wait on backup. And you've been on the force for 30 years, you know better than that. Hey, I got a question. Yeah. So let's bring it back to Title VII, right? Yeah. It's just like because part of it is a Title VII complaint put the ball rolling all the way down. Yes. And many things happened that you had never intended, right? And that goes back to making a complaint is a very individual decision. It's a very personal decision. It's like, how do we look at that in turn? And I think it's unfair to say, would you have made that decision before we've talked about it? It's like, that's not necessarily for this time because, or if it can be if you want, but the idea is, I asked you one time, you had said during the, this segment that you became a whistleblower. Yes. Right? And I asked you, what was the difference between a whistleblower and a... Snitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And so I think it's a fair question for this audience. Yes. So it's just, it's a very interesting thing. So there's a lot to carry with you in putting that forward. But you said something very interesting to me. You had said the whistleblower 
doesn't do it for themselves, although they may get some kind of compensation, but ultimately the right, the wrong, and the change, the course and direction for the people to come behind them. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I felt it my responsibility to stand up and say this is wrong in any organization that aligns itself with racism, racial discrimination, on any level of any sort is wrong. I would be very interested to see what your listeners feel about this case, what their comments are, how they relate to their own workplace situations, because um, there's a lot here today. And we know as we're making a film about it, there's many twists and turns. And so I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Our takeaways this episode is that one-third of American employees have reported being bullied at work sometime in their careers. And according to the Insurance Journal, companies paid out more than $356 million in harassment lawsuit settlements. A hostile work environment can be devastating for both the employee and the employer. Bullied workers report higher levels of stress, health issues, and problems at home, while employers experience higher turnovers, litigation costs, and loss of productivity. Even if your company has anti-harassment policies in place, if you feel you are experiencing a hostile work environment, you need to follow a few guidelines to protect your career and your health. Employment discrimination statutes do not expressly prohibit hostile work environment discrimination. Most prohibit discrimination in the terms or conditions of employment based on membership in a protected class. The statutes were designed to prohibit discrimination in hiring, promotion wages, and other terms and conditions of employment. The general outlines of hostile work environment law have been shaped by decisions in federal courts construing federal employment discrimination statutes, principally Title VII. Your first action against a hostile environment should be to take up the issue with your employer. You will be expected to do it this way before filing a formal complaint, unless there's a very good reason not to. If that doesn't work, you have 180 days after the last incident to file a discrimination complaint with the EEOC. If the problem is not resolved within six months, one way or the other, you should discuss possibilities with the lawyer of filing a civil lawsuit. That concludes this episode. Once again, we'd like to thank you for listening. We'd like to ask that you please remember to subscribe to our podcast and share. You may listen to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Reach out, as we've been talking about. Contact us by email. Our email address, once again, is rwtv2020 at gmail.com.